This is Guns and Butter. Where there's smoke, there's fire, generally. We have several experiments claiming this type of electrodynamical energy. But as I say, it's worldwide, so I don't think the fire can be put out, if, if it's real. I still have to remind people that you know, I've been doing energy research for a long time, decades. I find there are hundreds of people looking at this, just many people. There are three devices right now being very actively studied by this community. I'm not claiming that we have a proof of this yet, but I don't think we're far from it. I, I really don't. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Earthquake, Fusion, and New Energy Research. Dr. Stephen Jones was professor of physics at Brigham Young University for 22 years. He was principal investigator for experimental muon-catalyzed fusion for the Department of Energy, Division of Advanced Energy Projects. In September of 2005, Dr. Jones presented his views on the collapse of the World Trade Center Towers and World Trade Center 7 at a BYU seminar and published his paper, Why Indeed Did the World Trade Center Buildings Collapse? He retired from Brigham Young University in January 2007 amid controversy surrounding his scientific work on the physical evidence of controlled demolition on September 11th. His most recent scientific article, co-written with eight other authors, was published in April of 2009 in the Open Chemical Physics Journal titled Active Thermitic Material Discovered in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. Today we discuss Dr. Jones's recent research on earthquakes and energy. Dr. Stephen Jones, welcome. Nice to be here with you, Bonnie. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, you've been, for several years now, conducting very interesting research in a variety of topics, and I wanted to ask you about earthquakes. Now, I know you've been looking at this subject in depth and actually asking whether or not man-made earthquakes are a possibility. How has your research gone? How would you define it? You know, as people hear about the... uh possibility of man-made earthquakes. Most people have not heard of this before, and therefore they tend to put up a bit of a wall. I recently had a comment from a a fellow. His response to me was, uh, well, I have it here. He says, uh, who is really curious about the ability to make man-made earthquakes? The idea was never serious to begin with. It is better to dismiss such a silly notion out of hand. So you see, Uh, That's the kind of reaction you get initially, but uh, as I looked into this, uh, that is just not the case. Man-made earthquakes are actually quite common. Um, U.S. Geological Survey, for instance, uh, points out, and this is on their website, earthquakes induced by human activity have been documented in the United States, Japan, and Canada. Then they refer to the largest type of man-made earthquake, uh, which was in 1967 so far, an earthquake of magnitude 5.5, along with a series of smaller earthquakes. And this was uh, 
induced by fluid injection into the rock of the uh, crust. So it's not really too surprising. And there have been a number of articles actually, for instance, in Wired magazine that discuss, well, the Wired mag magazine article discussed how to generate earthquakes. I mean, it, it lists uh, several ways this could be done. For instance, with uh, testing for oil, there's typically a bumping of the ground, a thumping, if you will, and this is used to generate seismic waves in the rock in order to determine location of oil, for example. So it's very common. And a uh, geophysicist, Close was his name, at Columbia University, estimated that about one-fourth of the earthquake activity in Great Britain was caused by human activity. A very uh, interesting example people might not have heard of. This was in the New York Times, a coverage of earthquakes generated in Switzerland by a fellow who's digging into the Earth's crust to, again, inject water and uh, get the water heated by the deep rock and then bring the hot water up as a source of energy. Unfortunately, the water proved to lubricate the rock, and where there's already stresses and fractures in the deep rock, this resulted in large earthquakes in Switzerland, which actually damaged homes. So clearly, man-made earthquakes can uh, and have been produced. <laughs> it's, not, it's not pie in the sky. It's certainly not a silly notion. So these are all, uh, these instances that you're mentioning, these are all documented instances of earthquake activity generated by human activity. Right, exactly. Yeah, man-made earthquakes, that's what they are. Now, Dr. Jones, what uh, motivated you to embark on research on earthquakes? Well, that's a good question, I guess. <laughs> I get uh, people asking me, questions. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And sometimes something catches my particular interest. In this case, uh, I came across an article that was written about Nikola Tesla, much like we're doing here. He was interviewed by a newspaper reporter in 1935, and he discussed an earthquake machine that he built some three decades before that, and he kind of kept it quiet. But anyway, his story about his earthquake machine that he built and, and uh, ran generated a fairly sizable earthquake. I found uh, it could be quite fascinating, and it led to other studies of uh, man-made earthquakes. What exactly was the machine that Tesla had? Didn't he have a machine that he claimed could have brought an entire building down? Yeah. Let me just read a little bit. This is from the um, July 11th, 1935, New York World Telegram newspaper. And um, Nikola Tesla revealed that an earthquake which drew police to the region of his laboratory, Houston Street, New York, New York City, in 1898, was the result of a little machine he was experimenting with at the time, which, quote, you could put in your overcoat pocket. So just a, a small... Uh, a small device. He said in his own words, Tesla, Nikola Tesla, I was experimenting with vibrations. I had one of my machines going and I wanted to see if I could get it in tune with the vibrations of the building. Now each uh, building and also other structures, including faults, earthquake faults deep in the earth, 
uh, will have a certain resonant frequency. That is their natural frequency. If you think of a, a glass, say a, a nice crystal glass, and you tap it with your fingernail, it will give off a tone. That's the natural frequency. If then you apply an external sound of that same frequency, the glass will begin to vibrate more and more. It picks up that natural, it's called a resonance. So the driving frequency, when that equals the natural frequency of the object, then the object starts to vibrate more and more. And you've probably uh, seen that demonstration where someone sings with a very loud voice. It's actually on YouTube. <laughs> it is possible. Again, uh, people think this is a myth that you can do with your voice, the human voice, but you can. It's there on YouTube. So here's this uh, woman. They tap the glass and she gets the tone and then she sings as loud as she can at that tone and the glass begins to vibrate and it breaks finally. The same with the building. It has an, a natural frequency much lower frequency than a glass in, in general. But So back to Tesla. I wanted to see if I could uh, get it, my little, his little uh, earthquake machine, in tune with the vibration of the building. I put it up notch after notch. There was a peculiar cracking sound. I asked my assistants, where did the sound come from? They did not know. I put up the machine a few more notches. There was a louder cracking sound. Now, Nikola Tesla's, you know, classic experimenter. <laughs> He's inside this building, you understand. It's starting to vibrate. I knew I was approaching the vibration of the steel building. I pushed the machine a little higher. Suddenly, all the heavy machinery in the place was flying around. <laughs> now, this is just a little machine that, apparently small enough to fit in your pocket, is just thumping and thumping repeatedly and at the right frequency. I grabbed a hammer and I broke the machine. <laughs> he decided it was getting out of hand. The building would have been about our ears in another few minutes. Outside in the street, there was pandemonium. The police and ambulances arrived. I told my assistants to say nothing. We told the police it must have been an earthquake. That's all they ever knew about it. <laughs> so some about 37 years later, he finally discloses the secret of that earthquake that it was man-made. I thought that was quite interesting. I might add to that that uh, he had a platform where you could stand and uh, feel the vibrations. And his friend, Mark Twain, visited him. And uh, Nikola Tesla invited him onto the stand so he could feel the effects of this man-made uh, earthquake. And uh, so... Here's Mark Twain standing on this platform, and Nikola Tesla turns it on, and it starts to vibrate, and Mark Twain says, oh, I, I rather like this, and Tesla says, you better get off of there. It has some side effects, and, and Mark Twain said, no, no, it's fine, and he stayed there too long and had to rush to the uh, water closet. <laughs> so <laughs> that's another uh, Nikola Tesla story, and uh, I'm sure it's quite true. Now, uh, do you find Tesla's experiment with the, with the earthquake believable? Oh, sure. Sure. The, the principle of resonance is uh, actually quite well known. For instance, uh, soldiers marching across a bridge break out of uh, uniform step so as to avoid pounding repeatedly with the same frequency 
which could cause the bridge itself to vibrate at its natural frequency and then fall. So this is actually a well-known uh, uh, phenomenon. It's just that people don't, for some reason, think about the possibility of uh, creating earthquakes, but it's actually uh, quite commonplace. I would call it resonance. It's a resonance condition where the natural frequency of the building is matched by the frequency of the driver. And now why would this then cause the building to collapse or the earthquake to happen? Yeah, um, because uh, it's just, it's, again, like uh, with a glass that you hit with its natural frequency of vibration. In a resonance condition, you're driving it more and more. Think of a child on a swing. We see that natural uh, frequency for the vibration. It's pretty slow. When there's a child on a swing, it might take you know, a second for the child to go up and come back. But you want to push whenever the child is at the top. That means your, your external driving force is in resonance with the natural frequency of the swing. You wouldn't want to push right when the child's at the bottom. That would be uh, disastrous. <laughs> no, you push in resonance. And if you do that just right, the swing will go higher and higher. Um, and so uh, with the building, it's the same way. There's a natural resonant frequency. I guess what I don't understand is why it would dis- why would uh, matching the frequency disrupt everything? Well, it's, uh, if you think of this, uh, of this glass, it vibrates more and more as you hit it at the natural frequency. What happens is, is the amplitude gets larger. The motion gets larger. We call that the amplitude then eventually you exceed the elastic limit, which means uh, the, the object cannot come back. Uh, you exceed its ability to return to its original shape, and it breaks. That can happen, that can happen to buildings as well as to, uh, you know, a wine glass. You're listening to physicist Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show... Earthquake, Fusion, and New Energy Research. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do you know of any other instances of human-induced earthquakes? Now, there's an awful lot of stuff on the Internet. There's all sorts of claims being made about these antennas in Alaska. People are ascribing all sorts of things to this. Do you know anything about HARP, and what is it? Well, I've studied HARP some. HARP involves uh, radio waves that can be directed, uh, and as you say, there's a facility for testing the effects of these high-intensity radio waves, and this facility is in Alaska. Um, Now, I have not seen any reason to suppose that radio waves can couple to Earth motion. Now, Tesla's machine was a mechanical machine, that actually contacted the building, in his case, and pushed on it. Thump, thump, thump. Whereas a radio, you know, you can hear your radio in your house. It, the radio waves go right through the walls in general, right? Um, and so they don't make the walls vibrate. I mean, not noticeably at all. So that's one thing. There's, it's this coupling of radio waves to the earth, which is absent uh, and so, uh, see, I'm an experimenter. I like to do experiments. 
and uh, I have actually worked with ground-penetrating radar. This is part of my archaeometry work at the university. So what that is is radio, which is radar, and, and you send that into the earth looking for pipes, for example. It can also help find large archaeological artifacts. But the uh, fact is, as I was working with this ground-penetrating radar, I noticed uh, that uh, it's limited in how far you can go. The, the radio waves just don't travel very far in Earth. Now, submarines use sonar, which is sound waves that bounce off other objects, whereas airplanes use radar. And that's because radio, which is the basis of radar, radio waves, uh, radar travels easily through air. But when you get to water, uh, it doesn't go very far. And ground, especially wet ground, again, it does not go very far. You might be able to go a football field length into the earth with radio or two or three. That's it. So how would you then be able to induce uh, an earthquake down a mile or three or five miles with harp? It just does not make any sense to me. Now, when people claim that, I have heard that claim, but I've consistently um, said I don't think so. But if someone makes that hypothesis, they perhaps would have the um, decency to <laughs> do an experiment, maybe on a small scale, but show how radio waves can couple with the earth, first of all, to cause shaking in the earth. Let's start there. But the next thing is, how are you going to get it deep enough into the earth to cause deep shaking? I just don't think so, Bonnie. I see. So from a scientific viewpoint, from what you know, it seems unlikely, highly unlikely to you that harp could be causing earthquakes. Uh, exactly. Yeah, well said. I, highly unlikely that harp is causing earthquakes. Let's just put it right out there. <laughs> now, are you saying that sound waves, uh, what could cause an earthquake? I mean, obviously, liquid, you, you've mentioned liquid induced into the earth. Uh, what, what else? Okay, liquid injection is certainly one way. Another way is um, sound waves, if they're high enough intensity, could, uh, could do that. Um, let's see, contacting the earth like you have with Tesla's little generators, basically thumping the earth, uh, that can go to a certain depth, not perhaps very deep. Um, those are the main ways. I think sound waves are about the probably the best way to go any depth. Ultrasound, for instance, could travel in more of a beam-like pattern, where like a flashlight beam. You see, ultrasound can be more like that and could travel to greater depths. But I don't really know how deep you could go. But yeah, that's one way. And, and the sound waves, that is different than a radio wave. Oh, yes. Yeah, radio is uh, electromagnetic radiation. Sound wave is just a uh, a vibration in material, such as air, as I'm speaking to you, or in the ground. Have you ever heard anyone underwater? They can sort of communicate. <laughs> or if you click something together, you can two rocks, you can hear that quite well underwater. So water conducts, and so does uh, put your ear on the railroad track if there's no train near. <laughs> but you can hear a long distance that way. So sure, sound will travel through solids, liquids, and gases. 
And uh, finally, with regard to earthquakes, I know that you've been looking into this subject for several years now. What kind of a kind of a reaction do you get? Well, you see, uh, I don't know that I'll research it much more. I might uh, some, but uh, uh, there's the first reaction. Some people say, oh, man-made earthquakes, that's just impossible. But as we've gone through the illustrations of actual observed man-made earthquakes, as in Switzerland that we talked about, and Colorado with a fluid injection, quite a sizable earthquake there in Colorado. And in Switzerland, homes were damaged by these man-made earthquakes. And so that's the first thing, is to overcome this... Uh, I guess, ignorance factor. People just don't know that that can happen. And then HARP, on the other hand, uh, some people uh, just really think that HARP, this radio station way up in Alaska, can induce an earthquake in, I don't know, Japan. But um, there's really, I have to point out to them the uh, physics difficulties in getting radio waves so deep in the earth that Earthquake in Japan was uh, somewhere around 10 miles deep. I looked it up once, but it was very deep. I don't know of any way to get radio waves uh, 10 miles into the earth. But if someone wants to show me the experiment, then I will take a look at the data. Can earthquakes occur where there's no uh, fault? Oh, sure. That is to say, uh, for instance, in Switzerland, where the fluid was injected into the ground, this was near Basel, uh, there are cracks in the rocks and so on, and the fluid injected in there caused things to move. As I recall, there was no fault line there exactly, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the earth shifted sufficiently. And this was a couple miles down, apparently. They drilled, and then they injected pressure, uh, water under pressure, and uh, the earth moved and caused some quakes, so... Yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily require a fault zone. And I'm assuming from what you're saying that if they were doing liquid induction into the earth and there happened to be a fault there, mm. then they'd get what, a bigger earthquake? Yeah, that's certainly uh, very possible. Um, there was a physicist by the name of McDonald, Gordon McDonald, University of California, Los Angeles, and this was back in the late 60s. He published papers on the use of uh, such technologies. And let's see, quoting him, the key to geophysical warfare, so that's also you know, a possibility, is the identification of environmental instabilities to which the addition of a small amount of energy would release vastly greater amounts of energy. So, for example, in a fault zone where there's all this stored pent-up energy because the plates are locked. Uh, and when they move, they can release enormous energy that's stored there. But if you inject a liquid, for example, uh, you could actually get these plates to move and therefore release their energy along the fault zone. As my son points out, this could be done for peaceful purposes as well, <laughs> if you're very careful. For example, if you had an area where you know there's a lot of, I don't know, I'd be real careful about this, but uh, pent-up stored energy in a fault, you might be able to relieve some of that locally with a fluid injection, inducing small earthquakes so that you would prevent or at least uh, hopefully uh, mitigate against large 
very destructive earthquakes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that would be good. Now, this a quote from someone uh, with regard to geo-warfare, that was out of UCLA, right? Yeah, that's at UCLA. Uh, McDonald, Professor McDonald. Another uh, long-term interest of yours is in energy. You've written several papers. What is muon-catalyzed fusion? Well, maybe we should start generally. What is your interest in energy? What kind of research are you doing, and and what's prompted your interest in energy in general? Mm -hmm. All right, my interest in energy goes back to uh, 1979, probably, with the first proposal on energy, muon-catalyzed fusion, right about that time. And, uh, you know... I just, I've just always had an interest in how energy could be produced by non-conventional means. In other words, in particular, without relying on fossil fuels. So what could we do that's uh, clean and, and sustainable in terms of energy production? So in the uh, 80s and into the 90s, I did experiments on, on fusion. Now, fusion is the combining of light nuclei, particularly hydrogen isotopes, the nuclei, the center of the atom, combining those together, uh, fusing them together. So it's a marriage of hydrogen isotopes at that subatomic level, the nuclear level. And uh, this releases a great deal of energy. And there's no fission products because there's no fission. (laughs) <laughs> we're not going fission here, we're going fusion. And so um, we're looking at joining the nuclei together. And if you do that carefully, you can limit the uh, radioactivity that comes out of the system. There is some, but you can limit that. Uh, you don't get the radioactive iodine that is a big problem with, uh, you know, in Japan where they have these reactors that uh, have broken, and you get the release of radioactive iodine in particular, and strontium, and all sorts of stuff uh, that you don't want in your body. With fusion, it can be much better. Uh, For instance, uh, joining together a deuteron and a triton, these are isotopes of hydrogen, heavier isotopes, join those together, and you get uh, helium-4, which is ordinary helium and uh, a neutron. Helium you put into children's balloons. You know, it's totally safe. (laughs) The neutron gets captured and actually helps to produce tritium for the fuel for the reactor. So I studied that particular reaction, DT, it's called deuteron-triton reaction, uh, beginning in about 1983. And our first paper was in Physical Review Letters. Uh, I was the first author. That was in February of 1986. No, I have it in front of me, but that's actually our our second paper, I think. We had several papers. This is our first major paper. (laughs) And that's the way science goes. You have smaller papers, so to speak, uh, less uh, prestigious journals, perhaps. This one is uh, certainly one of the top journals in physics, physical review letters. And it's called, um, the title is Observation of Unexpected Density Effects in Muon-Catalyzed DT Fusion. 
I received a lot of attention and I was able to travel to universities and laboratories worldwide really talking about this work and, and performing the work. Uh, the work was initially done at the Los Alamos Maison Physics Facility. From there I went to Rutherford Laboratories in uh, United Kingdom, over to KEK in Japan, uh, talked to people in Switzerland and Russia, helped them, you know, where I could get some experiments going in those areas, Dubna, for example, in Russia. So, you know, it's a worldwide effort to try to understand muon-catalyzed fusion. You're listening to physicist Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Earthquake, Fusion, and New Energy Research. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The, the nuclei that we're pulling close together because the muon is heavier than the electron. Let's see if I can explain that. So if you have an ordinary hydrogen molecule, the uh, nuclei of hydrogen are quite far apart. The fusion rate is close to zero. In fact, uh, the age of the universe, you might get a few fusions. I mean, it's very small. <laughs> when, when you just have you know, a, an electron, two electrons holding these, uh, these hydrogen nuclei together in a molecule. Now, if you replace that electron with a muon, uh, which is basically a heavy electron, that's speaking a little roughly, but that's basically what it is. It's another elementary particle like the electron. And it weighs 200 times as much as the cousin of the electron. So you can form a molecule then with a muon instead of electron. But the muon is 200 times heavier. And what, what happens in that case then is that the, because of the mass of the muon, the uh, molecule is much, much smaller. And now fusion can occur in, uh, in less than a nanosecond. So it's very rapid. For DT, for example, Deuteron Triton, it occurs very rapidly. Now, it occurs so fast, now the muon's free to go induce another fusion and another and another. And so we say it, the muon catalyzes the fusion reaction. It induces the reaction without being consumed in the process. So it's a catalyst for nuclear fusion. Quite a good trick nature has provided. First observed by Louis Alvarez, and I talked to uh, Professor Alvarez before he passed away a couple times. He's very supportive of our experimental research. And I uh, just had a lot of fun studying this. Now, there is, a, there is one problem. There's a fly in the ointment. <laughs> Let's look at DT fusion, which is the fastest one that we could find, catalyzed by muons, the fastest fusion reaction. The problem is that you produce this helium nucleus, which comes flying out. And sometimes the muon gets stuck. We actually call it sticking uh, to the um, alpha particle, which is the helium nucleus. And so we measured the uh, muon alpha sticking coefficient. It's a mouthful, but which is basically the fraction of muons that uh, stick to the alpha and uh, are lost. And it turned out that our number was about 0.41% less than half the theoretically predicted value. So that's good news because you want that to be as small as possible, your loss of muons. But, and by the way, it caused some stir. Uh, there was a professor at UC Berkeley who just uh, 
couldn't believe that the sticking coefficient could be so small. He thought we must have made some mistake. I won't mention his name. He came around later after <laughs> other experiments came in and confirmed our result. Um, we, we achieved 150 fusion, that, that is DT fusions, per muon average in, in one set of conditions. That's the world record for fusions per muon, 150. That releases a lot more energy than is in the muon itself. But it's not enough for commercial power. But you know, it only misses by about a factor of six, six or ten. Couldn't find any way to bridge that gap, though. And again, it has to do with the muon loss as the muon uh, sticks 0.4% of the time to the alpha particle. And we just couldn't find a way around that. But it was our first um, close... We were so close. Yeah, a factor of six in nature, that's not too far. <laughs> so then, Dr. Jones, you're saying that you were able to create more energy with less energy put in, right? That you were able, actually able to create energy this way. Well, okay. Um, a physicist like myself might object to the term create energy. <laughs> Let me explain a little bit. What you're doing is you're rearranging the nuclei and you're releasing stored potential energy. So the deuteron and the triton have a certain amount of energy. When you rearrange those to produce helium and a neutron, well, there's potential energy that's released. It's called nuclear potential energy. It's released just by rearranging the nuclei. Pretty good trick. And that's uh, the fusion reaction, the basis of it. Well, then, now you've also uh, conducted experiments with regard to cold fusion, right? right. Now, what's cold fusion? Okay, well, first of all, uh, muon-catalyzed fusion occurs just fine at room temperature. That is, in room temperature uh, gases of these hydrogen isotopes. So we used to call it cold fusion all the time. <laughs> but then there's... Uh, What's commonly called cold fusion now uh, was so named by uh, myself and a colleague at BYU, Paul Palmer. And um, this is fusion that occurs in metals. In other words, certain metals, this was our hypothesis, can enhance the fusion rate. So I mentioned that in a molecule, the fusion rate is infinitesimally slow. Uh, it's so slow that it's uh, you, you really can't... Uh, measure it experimentally. But now our thought was that if you put these hydrogen isotopes, dissolve them in a metal, um, that in the metal, the metal itself could bring the hydrogen isotopes. We'll go to just deuterons now. Our experiments were done with uh, this heavy hydrogen, deuterium. So the deuteron is the nucleus and when you introduce that into a metal, sure enough, they, you can get them closer together. And our hypothesis, our prediction was that certain metals would enhance the fusion rate compared to what you have in just an ordinary hydrogen molecule. Uh, so that the metal itself would become the catalyst for the fusion reaction. We call this metal-catalyzed fusion. And, of course, the popular press picked up the term cold fusion and as much easier than metal catalyzed <laughs> and went with that. Uh, we did actually publish a paper. This is a long story. Wow. 
it's interesting, you know, science, the way it goes, but we published in Nature, probably the premier physics or, or science journal in the world. In April 1989, we published our papers, peer-reviewed, of course, very controversial, and, uh, but it, it was replicated about 10 years later. Let, let me explain what I mean by, in this case, 10 years later, other experiments replicated it, but our major problem was that we were unable to get the effect 100% of the time until the experimenters in uh, physicists in Japan and then later Europe succeeded in finding a way to get this to work 100% of the time, 100% reproducible, which is uh, crucial, of course, to science, is that every time you do the experiment, it works. <laughs> you know? And what they found, and our hypothesis was completely uh, sustained. Again, it is that certain metals will work or enhance fusion better than other metals, but that metals will enhance nuclear fusion. That's exactly what they found. And the best metals are um, antimony, platinum, thallium, aluminum's not bad, iron, zinc, lead, vanadium, all these are pretty good. But the best alloy that has been found so far in the scientific literature now is the palladium-lithium alloy. And that uh, enhances the fusion rate quite dramatically. It's actually quite hard to explain theoretically how this uh, fusion rate could be enhanced so much in the palladium-lithium alloy. By the way, we had palladium-lithium in our experiment because we were we used an electrolytic cell most of the time, which had uh, in the solution palladium and lithium. So these were being plated out and the deuterium was being placed into the palladium-lithium mix or alloy. Uh, at the same time, we call that co-deposition, putting the deuterium right into the metals. They're being deposited on the cathode. And so uh, it's really not too surprising that we saw fusion. The technique that was developed by the Japanese in conjunction with a very good Russian physicist, but the experiments performed in Japan... What was involved was uh, a very low-energy beam of deuterons impinging, that is, hitting this metal. You choose the metal, and then you watch the fusion rate. And again, at very low energy. So, um, let's see, I've got this here. This is a publication in 2006. Our experiments go back to 1986, so... 20 years till this publication. However, actually, th this is from the uh, European Physics Journal. There was an earlier publication by the Japanese group. But specifically, the uh, European group, Sersky et al., state that their experiments can explain the neutron production rate observed by Jones et al. at room temperature, and they cite our Nature paper. So that was confirmed. A lot of people don't know that, but it is true. So, so we feel like our experiments were uh, put on very solid uh, grounds, 100% reproducibility, reproducing the effect that we observed and claimed and published, uh, gosh, 10 years before it was uh, finally made 100% reproducible. Well, Dr. Jones, what's the significance of this, uh, of this research you've been doing? 
Well, uh, the significance is uh, that, first of all, it's very exciting as a physicist that metals will actually uh, enhance the fusion rate. Uh, it's not at a practical level, that's for certain. We're way below practical level with the cold fusion. I mentioned the muon catalyzed fusion only misses commercial power by a factor of about 6 or 10. The metal catalyzed fusion misses by a factor of at least a billion. <laughs> but it's still interesting scientifically. Now, um, all of this, of course, was published in major journals. We published a paper entitled Cold Nuclear Fusion in the July 1987 Scientific American. This, however, is about uh, muon catalyzed fusion, you see. So, uh, and, of course, Nature published, gosh, two or three times in that journal regarding these two types of fusion. And so I guess it shows my interest in energy research by non-conventional means. And, uh, you know, I keep bumping my head against the wall, I guess. <laughs> I'm trying one more uh, type, one more approach to energy, as, as we discussed earlier briefly. But uh, pretty excited about this new approach. Now, um, uh, so it, it, just to conclude, both of these forms of fusion release energy. This is the whole point. Well, sure. Yeah, and, and that is indeed what uh, I was looking for, is an approach, an approach to energy production that would not require burning of fossil fuels, that would be clean and uh, sustainable. You see, um, we really could use some type of energy, right, other than gasoline at $4 a gallon. <laughs> so uh, these approaches do release energy, just not enough uh, compared to what you have to put in to, to get the reaction to go. And that's in the case of cold fusion and muon catalyzed fusion. But there, you know, there's hope for other non-conventional approaches to energy. You're listening to physicist Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show... Earthquake, Fusion, and New Energy Research. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well now, uh, Dr. Jones, are you looking at a new form of energy? What else is going on? Yeah. As uh, friends have recently told me, uh-oh, here we go again. <laughs> Which is quite the case. I, I'm just a curious kind of guy. But you know, experiments determine reality, uh, what nature can give you, not public opinion or even scientific opinion, right? You have to do experiments. Galileo showed the way in that regard by observing the moons going around Jupiter, proving that the universe did not revolve around the earth, which is a rather egotistical view <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, you know, experiments resolve these questions not some dogmatic statement. And in this case, starting just a couple of years ago, I began looking into experimental devices that are electromagnetic in nature. They all involve coil. You can think of a transformer, wires wrapped around a core, typically a ferritic or iron-type core, 
and uh, they all involve that. I started looking at this because I have a friend that was very interested in this as trying to build such a machine. He couldn't succeed yet. <laughs> Last year, um, 2010, I started looking in more detail at these uh, devices. And then uh, there, there are three forums, and they're international forums, that discuss these, I'm going to call it... Uh, new kind of dynamic energy. This is borrowing some terminology from the scientific literature regarding dark energy, which we don't know much about, but it gives you at least a hope that uh, maybe there is some form of energy out there we could tap into. And, and the experimental basis, see, the Galilean approach is, let's do experiments. <laughs> And that'll tell us. We may not know where the energy is coming from yet. I'm not talking here about a perpetual motion machine. No. Energy uh, would come from somewhere. But uh, first you do the experiment and demonstrate that you're getting power out more than you put in. There's a, more electrical power out than electrical power in. And some other source of energy then is coming in to make up the difference. That's what I expect. And, you know, there's enough... Where there's smoke, there's fire, generally. Uh, we have several experiments claiming this type of uh, electrodynamical energy. And so I jumped into the fray myself last year and designed a little circuit. Now this is building on others. Try this and try that. And I think maybe this will work. And no, that doesn't work. And, and uh, finally developed a little circuit just one transistor, uh, toroid, with a bifiler winding, and it's it's up on. Uh, it's discussed mainly. Let's see, where could I point a person if they wanted to look at it? I suppose if you went to, it's on YouTube. I, I've talked about these results on YouTube, but if you go to pesn.com, and uh, so you Google pesn. Stephen Jones, and that should bring it up on top, because uh, I think I'm the only Stephen Jones researching this right now. <laughs> now, there are lots of others, though. I find there are hundreds of people looking at this, just many people. There are three devices right now being very actively studied by this community of uh, electronic inventors, hobbyists, researchers. I'm not sure the right term, but all over the world, people in Small laboratories, typically, or their homes, are studying this process. And uh, I think it's a lot of fun. I'm learning a lot. I'm not claiming that we have a proof of this yet. But I don't think we're far from it. I, I really don't. Uh, there are enough devices out there. Well, well, let me give you an example. There is a device uh, uh, suggested by Mueller out of Canada, I think. He's passed away now, but uh, fairly recently. But before he died, he presented this idea of a Mueller generator. It's really a motor connected to a generator, but it's one system. So you've got a motor generator built together. It's rather clever. Um, and uh, this fellow in the United Kingdom by the name of Romero he posted early in May. He said, I got this to work. 
and he showed a video of it and then he said here's the plans here's how I did it here's the details very nice and, and you know this is done we call it open source so this is done freely to the public so that researchers around the world were invited to build this machine this motor generator all in one and, uh, and then Romero came and this is what caused the excitement he said oh, wait a minute I'm pretty sure I'm getting more output power than input power but it's at higher voltage on the output side. So what he did is he, he took that output and he put it through a DC to DC converter. Basically, just a little device. You can buy a radio shack and it steps down the voltage. And, and now he takes the output, puts it through the step down, uh, DC to DC converter, it's called, and feeds that output back into the input to keep the motor going. So. He's taking the result of the, from the generator and putting it back into the motor. Now again, that sounds like perpetual motion, but it's not if there's an outside source of energy, which is what I and others are claiming that it could very well be. Okay, We have to get the experiment to work first, and then we can find where that energy is coming from. We're not talking about violating uh, conservation of energy. We're not talking about violating the second law of thermodynamics. We're talking about a new source of energy. I, I emphasize that distinction. Okay, so anyway, so he takes the output power, electrical power, and feeds it back into the motor. It keeps the thing going. And uh, people say, wait a minute, how can you, you know, do that? Can you uh, suspend it, you know, so we can see there's no wires attached, no uh, capacitors or batteries that are just driving this thing. I mean, this thing's running at, I don't know, high RPMs. I forget now. Something like 1,000 RPM, something. It's really whizzing along. And it's lighting a light bulb, plus it's running itself. It's called self-running, which is the gold standard for this type of new kind of dynamical energy. So, yeah, he's got a video. He says, okay, here it is, you know, and he's holding it by his hand, and he's got bare feet, he's walking around his house with this thing spinning. He says, what, what else do you want me to do? The output power comes out, you can see, and it goes in here, and I'm just holding it by my hand. There's no wires here. Look, there's no wires attached. And this is on YouTube. Well, a few days later, and he's got his plans out there, and people saying, well, I want to try and build one of these. This is really great. You know, maybe we can solve some of the energy problems of mankind. Don't sell out, Romero. Don't sell out to big oil. We don't want this thing <laughs> to be stomped on or whatever. Well, guess what? He, he, uh, he comes on the uh, forum. This is uh, overunity.com. You can Google that, uh, overunity.com, and uh, Romero spells R-O-M-E-R-O. Anyway, he says... Uh, I'm not going to say any more about this, I'm afraid. I, uh, and then he wrote to a, a, a colleague. He said, I've had a visit at my home by a couple of guys in dark suits, and they made it very clear to me that I was not to talk about this anymore. His device was confiscated. Now, this is, you know, first of all, the parts of it got to have to be, we estimate around six, $800 worth of parts plus all the hours that he put into it. It just doesn't seem fair, but he said, the way, the way he said to his colleague, he said, look, I've got a heart condition, and I've got a job and a family, and I'm not going to be able to do any more in this. I'm sorry, that's it. Done. 
So it's a sad story, but uh, but the good part of it is it was open source. So he's got all these videos and so on now, and, and notes, detailed notes. Now the notes were taken down, but someone had already preserved the notes <laughs> and put them back up. <laughs> and his videos were taken down because he had put them up there. Well, somebody had downloaded those, of course, and put them back up. <laughs> now when you've got hundreds of people around the world looking at this. You can't just stomp out all these little fires, you know. I don't... So it's going on, and it's real time. I mean, this came out early in May. Here we are about a month later. Uh, last time I checked, there are over 120,000 hits on this thread. A lot of people are reading it. I'm reading it. Um, and so, you know, my little device has had over, uh, it's, it's about 10,000 hits in 11 or 12 days, you know. So a lot of people are looking at it and building my little device too. And then there's a third device that is very actively being researched right now uh, called the uh, Gabriel device. You can Google that. <laughs> Gabriel uh, electromagnetic device. That should do it. If you wanted to Google that, and so uh, you know, we're not there yet, but uh, it's pretty exciting to to look at these uh, possibilities. And once we get it working, of course, the idea is to make it available to people, to homes worldwide. The goal is, and cars. The goal is to make this device of a size that individual homes could have power. If you think about what that would do to society. I mean, I think it's wonderful, but not the big oil. They wouldn't think it's wonderful, probably. <laughs> but, I mean, who cares? At some level, I mean, they're charging us $4 a gallon for gas. We want to find something else, you know, something I can run in my own home and charge my electric car and not pollute the atmosphere. I mean, come on, give me a break. I, can I do this? Or do I have to have guys come into my door telling me I can't? Well, uh, we'll see. But as I say, it's worldwide, so I don't think it's going to be... I don't think the fire can be put out, if, if it's real. Now, I still have to uh, remind people that, you know, I've been doing energy research for a long time, decades. But uh, in this one, I have actually measured myself with the best oscilloscope I could find. And uh, certainly adequate for the job, I think. And uh, it's a Tektronix 3032. I measure the output power, my little device, and I measure the input power. And there's more output than input, according to the measurement. So that becomes evidence for, not proof of. The best proof is to take the output power and feed it back into the input. In my little device, the input is a, a direct current from a battery or, or a capacitor. And the output definitely has a very large... AC components. So you can't just feed it back in. You have to rectify it and do some stuff. <laughs> so I and others are working on that problem of, of rectifying the output power so we can put it back into the input. And uh, at the same time, drive a light bulb or some other load. And then, of course, it has to be scaled up. We want to get up to you know, the kilowatt range so it can function in a home and do some good. Well, what about uh, Romero in the UK? Who were the, who did he receive the visit from? Ah, that's a good question. I actually posed that question on the forum. I said, does anyone, you know, 
contact Romero? Can they? Can you find out who it was that visited him? Yeah, but uh, no answer on that. He didn't say. He just said, "I'm sorry, guys. I can't talk about this anymore. I'm feeling scared. I'm not going to be discussing uh, this uh, anymore." Dr. Stephen Jones, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show has been Earthquake, Fusion, and New Energy Research. Dr. Stephen Jones was professor of physics at Brigham Young University for 22 years. He was principal investigator for experimental muon-catalyzed fusion for the Department of Energy, Division of Advanced Energy Projects. Websites mentioned by Dr. Jones on today's program are Pure Energy Systems News at PESN.com. That's PESN.com. And the Energy Forum at OverUnity.com. That's OverUnity.com. Dr. Stephen Jones is a founding member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice, a group of scholars dedicated to 9-11 research using the scientific method at www.stj911.org. Dr. Jones is also co-editor of the Journal for 9-11 Studies, a peer-reviewed journal at www.journalof911studies.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Release. You dig me?